Welcome back, friends, to episode 30 of the Banished to the Pen podcast, the audio portion of the website Banished to the Pen, a group baseball blog produced by fans of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts. This week, I am excited to be joined by two writers and members of Banished to the Pen's clan, I guess is the way to put it, and... Um, just good baseball guys. So, Alec Denton and Alex Hume. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, first place we start every week is uh, we have everybody introduce themselves. You know, who you're a fan of, who you, you know, your name on Twitter, and, you know, anything you want to share. And I, I think we'll start that way again this week, particularly when we have an Alex and an Alex. So, uh, let's start alphabetically. Alec, uh, kind of just introduce yourself to everybody. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, my name is Alec Denton. I write for Banish to the Pen. I am on Twitter at Aldlandia, a uh, fan of the Detroit Tigers, displaced fan living here in Atlanta, Georgia. Very, very cool. And uh, Alex, same question. Um, I'm Alex Hume. I also write for Banish to the Pen. Uh, I am a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, and I live... Uh, in a city about an hour west of Toronto. Very cool. Whereabouts? Um, it's a city called Ancaster. Uh, it's just west of Hamilton, if you're familiar with uh, Ontario geography at all. Oh, wow. Okay. Did you grow up playing baseball, or were you a hockey guy? I didn't uh, play many sports growing up. Uh, I played a little bit of just... Uh, low-level Little League House League uh, <laughs> when I was uh, 11, 12, and that was it. Uh, but I just grew up uh, loving sports, got really into the Blue Jays when I was 10 years old, and I'm into all the Toronto teams, uh, so I'm a long-suffering uh, Maple Leafs fan as well. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we've got two great uh, teams and uh, a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. So, uh Alec, I want to start with you if I can. I want to start and talk to you a little bit about the Detroit Tigers. I, th I think the big news in the last, I don't know, 72 hours or so, Dave Dombrowski left, as we all know, and is now going to be the, I guess, top dog general manager with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, first question I want to ask you is, one, were you surprised that Dombrowski is, is no longer the GM in Detroit? I don't think I was would be surprised if you told me that in 2016 Dombrowski would not be the GM in Detroit. I was surprised at the timing that he was, uh, the term was released from his contract, basically fired uh, very shortly after the trade deadline at the end of July. So I was surprised about the timing, although I did know that his contract was up and I think a lot of folks got the feeling that he probably would be done in Detroit after this year. Um, but the fact that, they, that he did not finish out the year uh, was pretty surprising. What were the, uh, the feelings of the general fan base? Were they surprised that Dombrowski is no, was, I mean, or did they feel like you did that 2016 maybe he wasn't going to be there? Or was this uh, a pretty big shock? No, I think people knew there was a chance that a change might be made. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I don't think that was surprising I, I really do think it was the suddenness of it that really caught everybody off guard now was Dombrowski the one making all the deals at the trade deadline because this was you know just a few weeks ago literally we were talking about the price trade and I, and I want to get into that with you as well but 
the timing of it, as you say, is is rather strange. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of speculation about what may have been going on behind the scenes, but uh, we do know that from all reports that Dombrowski was the one making the trades um, and that the, the trades that were made at the deadline, uh, the big trades being the David Price trade, Joaquin Soria and the UN assessed with his trades, uh, all were approved by owner Mike Illich. So, um, yeah, I mean, it seemed like the team had made the decision and reports would reveal that they made that decision very late, just as the fans were debating whether the Tigers should be buyers or sellers throughout the month of July. Uh, reports surfaced that in the front office that debate was going on as well and wasn't settled until uh, very shortly before the deadline on the 31st. Um, but the word was that Mike Illich signed off on all those moves. Um, well, and what is the speculation on who's going to be his replacement? Yeah, I think that's pretty clear, and uh, there's some interesting timing there as well, but it's going to be his right-hand man, uh, Al Avila, uh, who's known, who's the father of the Tigers' uh, starting catcher, Alex Avila, um, he scouted uh, Miguel Cabrera back when he and Dombrowski were with the Marlins um, and has really been with Dave for most of his career. And so uh, it seems pretty clear that he's got the reins uh, both to finish off this year and uh, I believe he signed a five-year contract. I don't know if that begins in 2016 uh, or begins this year, but he will be for the near-term future the Tigers' uh, general manager. And what are your thoughts on Avila? Is he, both you and I, I kind of want to get a feel for the fan base as well. Are you guys happy with the change? Are you glad that they stayed in-house? Or would you rather have seen them, you know, maybe test the waters and look somewhere elsewhere? I think, I really think everybody is still sort of in shock uh, a little bit and doesn't quite know what to think about the situation. I mean, look, the, ti the Tigers are not better without Dave Dombrowski. That much is clear. And so the thought that they would go out there and try and get some other uh, big-name GM I think would have struck people as a little bit silly only because they would say, hey, we just had the biggest-name GM. I mean, before <laughs> Rob Manfred was elevated to commissioner of baseball, people, I mean, I think the fear a year ago was we were going to lose Dombrowski to the MLB commissioner's office. Um, and so I don't know that people wanted a big search, I think, with Avila, people feel very comfortable that uh, he will step into Dombrowski's shoes. He's very capable, very qualified. Uh, his family, his father was a scout. Uh, he is from Cuba, I believe. And so uh, Avila had done a lot of Latin American scouting. Uh, and I think his baseball bona fides are definitely there. Um, I think, you know, people are, are pretty happy, is my sense, and I am too. I think. Uh, I think he will be in good hands. You know, the team will be in, in good hands with Avila. Um, I think one odd dynamic that go, plays into this whole thing, and, and we don't have to really parse out the calendar on it, uh, but is the hand of Mike Illich in all of this. And one of the strange things that came out when the Dombrowski firing was announced was uh, towards the end of Avila's comment, he said, you know, something about the Tigers being in win-now mode, basically, which really made a lot of folks head spin because it was less than a week after they had just done those three major trades, and everybody had kind of started to make peace with the idea of the rebooting, which was the term that Dombrowski used, the reloading, 
um, the selling. And to suddenly hear that they were going to try and win now just really seemed like the front office was moving two different directions at once. Well, and that leads into, you gave me a perfect segue there, that leads into what were your thoughts on the three major trades they made at the deadline? I, I'm sure we'll include Sori in that, but obviously uh, David Price and, and Cespedes are the two big names in the two big trades. Um, how did you think they did in terms of reloading their farm system and maybe their 2016 team? Yeah, so I, leading up to it, I was someone who thought they should make a go at it now. I was on team buy, as they were saying, and I really <laughs> thought that the team could make a go at it. That said, I absolutely understood the wisdom of selling. You had uh, three, and, and really more. I mean, uh, Avila, Alex Avila, the catcher's contract is ending. Rajay Davis's contract is ending. Uh, but those three big names, and I have to say, you know, Soria may not have the uh, national cachet as David Price and Yuan Cespedes, but in Detroit, a capable closer is just as big a name as anybody else these days. <laughs> um, and I thought that, you know, I, I mean, everybody seemed to agree, and I certainly agreed that if you're going to make the decision to trade those guys, and I see the logic and the wisdom in it, I think the return that they got was very good. Uh, I'm very happy with the uh, players they were able to pull in what, by all accounts, was a very compressed transaction window. Uh, I think. You know, I mean, Cespedes was traded with about 11 minutes to go in the deadline. Um, the other guys, just a matter of days before it. And so I think given that compressed situation, uh, I don't really even think you have to qualify. They've got a great prospects, major league ready guys who are going to be able to contribute, who already have contributed this year and will continue to contribute uh, at the major league level in 2016. Uh, Alex, do you have any questions for Alec? I have a couple more, but I just give you a spot here. Was it something that uh, you expected the Tigers to make uh, moves to move Major League pieces off the roster because they were uh, in a similar uh, position to the Blue Jays in as far as the wild card standings were concerned at the time of the moves? Yeah, Alex, that's a great point. That's something that I noted. Uh, I do a little bit of writing on my own site and noted that the Blue Jays and the Tigers were both about four games out with a week to go before the deadline. Um, and so I can't say I was surprised. I saw the wisdom of both approaches. My hope was, um, you know, as I'm sure Ryan, being a Nationals fan, can appreciate, you never want to squander a chance at the playoffs. <laughs> and, uh you know, I thought they had it there. Now, that said, both teams were scoring a lot of runs, but nobody was scoring more runs than Toronto. And with the, the way the Tigers were set up with their pitching problems and especially their relief pitching problems, they just weren't hitting enough to hit their way out of their defensive problems uh, as Toronto was. I mean, Toronto was scoring at an absolutely uh, crazy pace that's only picked up since adding Tulowitzki. And so I just think... They were basically showing their true talent, uh, I think, more or less, whereas Toronto, even though they had a similar record, probably was underplaying their true talent a little bit, at least as far as the offense was concerned. Um, so I, although they were in similar places in the standings, I don't think in terms of their actual rosters, they were as similar as their records might have reflected. Well, uh, Alex, go ahead if you have something else. Uh, yeah, I do have one more thing. The Blue Jays and Tigers uh, actually made a trade in the previous offseason 
trading the Blue Jays traded Anthony Ghost uh, to the Tigers uh, for prospect Devin Travis, uh, who had gone on to become the Blue Jays' regular second baseman uh, before beginning to struggle with some shoulder injuries. Do you think that that relationship helped this transaction come together at all? Uh, I'm sure it did. Uh, I know that uh, the Tigers have been uh, pretty frequent trade partners with Toronto in recent years, I believe. Uh, I may have this wrong, but I think Rajay Davis may have come over from Toronto. Uh, Anthony Ghosts, um, maybe even Gorzolani, Tom Gorzolani, the, the left-handed relief pitcher. I, I'm not sure about all those, but I know they've made a number of transactions, uh, including today the... the uh, relief pitcher Wolf, who uh, the Tigers got from Toronto for cash considerations, um, and that's even post-Dombrowski. So there definitely seems to be a relationship there. Obviously, the teams are very uh, pretty close geographically to each other. Um, and so I would have to say, yes, there definitely seems to be a uh, friendly and familiar dynamic between the teams that's really facilitated some moves uh, in both this year and in the past couple of years that I think have been pretty beneficial for both teams. Well, and uh, before we jump over to the Toronto, I, I want to ask you, Alec, kind of what does the offseason look like for Detroit? It looks like, you know, this season's, I don't want to say a wash, but, you know, the next 45 days are going to be a little rough. What's the offseason look like? It seems like they need to replace some pitching. They need bullpen are they going to go all in for 2016 or is is this going to be a sell-off in the offseason no they're definitely going to be in for 2016 uh the edict of mike illich via his new gm and alavi very clear this team remains uh, pedal down uh win now mode um unequivocally so and so the team uh definitely will continue to add uh, to the extent that they can uh, losing Soria and having a completely defective bullpen uh, all of this year and certainly parts of the last few seasons uh, means that that is a major uh, need to address, as well as the starting rotation. They've got some guys who are kind of quad A types who have been uh, back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation, um, and they're going to need to decide what they have in those guys they're going to need to decide what they have in Bruce Rondon, who has been uh, pointed to year after year as the <laughs> bullpen savior, and year after year he has not delivered in that role. So they're going to need to, in some fashion, uh, add pitching support, both in the rotation and in the bullpen. Um, as everybody knows, the Tigers' strength in terms of making moves is having money and an owner who's willing to spend it. Uh, their weakness is in having a thin farm system, uh, and those types of assets are going to make it probably difficult to, uh, or potentially difficult to purchase high-value assets in the off-season trade market. Uh, although, as uh, you mentioned, a lot of these uh, deadline moves have sort of restocked the farm system in a way that uh, should give them a little bit more mo mobility and maneuverability this off-season. My final question is, uh, just give me a prediction on somebody they signed this offseason. Boy, I don't even know. Um, I, I'm still, I have to admit, I'm still uh, reeling a little bit from the events of the past month or so and have not been able to turn my attention uh, to the offseason. Although, I'll say this, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, people shouldn't be shocked if Ioannis Cespedes comes back to the Tigers um, 
by he had an odd clause in his contract that actually made it more difficult for Detroit to retain him if they did not deal him at the deadline. Um, having traded him to the Mets, they will be uh, better able to get him back if they want to than they would have been able to if they kept him for the remainder of the year. So that might be one name. I'm interested to see what happens with Cespedes on the free agent market this year, where he is put defensively, what kind of deal he gets. Uh, okay, I'm interested to see. That That would make a natural fit, though. So, uh, Okay, Alex, I want to tag you in, although you've already been in, but I want to tag you in. And uh, let's talk a little bit brighter team right now. Let's talk Toronto Blue Jays. Um, you've got to be over the moon right now. I am. Uh, this is <laughs> something that myself and the Blue Jays fan base at large has been waiting for for many years now. Uh, we haven't been playing meaningful baseball games in August or September since at least 1998. It's just been that long. Uh, We haven't been to the playoffs since uh, 1993, which represents the longest uh, current drought in any of the four major North American pro sports. So there's just almost been this fatalistic feeling around the Blue Jays that Every summer, even when they look good on paper, they're just doomed to fail. And one thing that they have been doing over the span of time seems to be building strong portions of the team, but always leaving some weakness, whether it's the bullpen, the the bottom of the lineup, maybe depth, and hoping that weakness doesn't get exposed. Uh, this year, the major difference is they they saw the weaknesses uh, and decided to go and fix those things. We saw that even going as far back as the acquisition of Josh Donaldson and the signing of Russell Martin. Uh, they had competent players at catcher and third base in Deonor Navarro and Brett Laurie, uh, but they realized there was an opportunity to get even better. And then during the season seeing the weakness in the rotation, especially after Aaron Sanchez uh, suffered an injury. We ran through a number of uh, AAA call-ups. Matt Boyd was one of them. Uh, One of his starts here was a complete disaster. Uh, He allowed seven runs without recording an out. Uh, They made a decision to move some prospects and shore up uh, the rotation with David Price and shore up shortstop where there had been issues uh, both on offense and especially defense with Jose Reyes replacing him with Troy Tulowitzki. And let me and let me start there because I think many people and you know I don't follow Toronto certainly not like you do but I think most people thought yeah they might there's pretty good chance they were going to go get a starting pitcher but I don't think many people were talking about certainly adding offense was Tulowitzki mentioned anywhere was that a complete shock because I, I was floored when I saw that deal go down a few you know a few days before the deadline it was a complete shock to the fan base although later it was revealed that uh, this was something that uh, Anthopolis and Jeff Brittick had worked on uh, for a while uh, apparently Anthopolis had uh, been asking about Tulowitzki several times and the response was always no and then uh, ultimately it came down to were the Blue Jays willing to give up Jeff Hoffman. And uh, even though 
that wasn't something they wanted to do originally. Uh, he, uh, Hoffman, of course, was projected to be a first overall pick a couple of years ago, uh, had the Tommy John surgery, uh, sl slid to the Blue Jays at nine, and uh, Anthopoulos just finally uh, made a decision, bit the bullet, if you will, uh, and realized that it was more important to supplement uh, this team that we have now, especially with uh, the offense that the Blue Jays currently have, and much of which will be coming back in uh, 2016 to uh, have a, a marginal offensive upgrade, but a major upgrade uh, defensively from Jose Reyes. Are there any concerns with the fan base? And, and goodness, they've won 20 games or whatever it is in a row, it feels like, so I'm sure this is a tough question, but is there any concern with the fan base of giving up such a chunk of the future? And how will Tulowitzki do long-term playing on turf every day or, you know, 81 games a year? I think there definitely is. Uh, obviously, we didn't give up uh, low-value prospects for these guys. Uh, we gave up Jeff Hoffman. Uh, to uh, We also gave up uh, Miguel Castro, who actually started the year in the Blue Jays' bullpen and closed for a, a short period of time. Uh, and looks like uh, he will be a fine late-inning reliever who may even have a chance to start if the command improves. I think there was concern that maybe we were selling off the future, but somehow we were able to make uh, these deals, uh, the Tulowitzki deal, the Price deal, uh, adding Mark Lowe from the Mariners and, and Ben Revere from the Phillies, without uh, giving up sort of what would be in that next tier of top prospects. We were able to retain outfielder Dalton Pompey, who started the year with the club and is expected to be a long-term center fielder. Uh, Anthony Alford, uh, the former two-sport athlete who uh, took quite a while to get going in baseball because he was splitting his time uh, between uh, the two sports, baseball and football. He, uh, I believe he played strong safety at yeah, uh, Ole Miss. But uh, having finally transitioned to baseball full-time, uh, he's been uh, hitting extremely well, and all of his uh, is very toolsy. And I believe he ended up uh, getting on to Keith Law's midseason top 50. So now let me ask you, uh, let me get your perspective on the, on the price trade. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, what were your thoughts on that trade? I was absolutely elated. The, the thought was that if the Blue Jays were either going to acquire a pitcher or Daniel Norris was going to uh, enter the rotation in the next turn through after the trading deadline. And uh, having Daniel Norris uh, enter the rotation was considered the worst scenario. Uh, everybody in the Blue Jays fan base and even the players themselves realized there was a need for pitching. Uh, there were even some rumors that at the time of the Tulowitzki acquisition, a lot, some of the players were almost disappointed in a way, thinking, uh, it's great we have more offense, but we still have these major pitching holes. How are we going to solve that? I also uh, grew up having the opportunity to watch Roy Halladay go out there every fifth day uh, from 2003 until 2009, and that was the last we've seen of a true ace. We've had some competent starters, uh, some number two type starters come through 
since then. Uh, Marcus Stroman made uh, about half a season worth of starts for us last year, but we haven't had that true uh, top 15 or top 10 pitcher in baseball, and it's been something the Blue Jays have missed. And now, uh, finally, they have this again, and and the Toronto fans are ecstatic. I actually went to uh, Price's home debut. I was able to uh, get tickets once I realized uh, that he would be pitching, even though it was on a holiday Monday. And he was doing laps in the outfield before the game and was receiving a standing ovation. Wow. That's very interesting. That's very cool. We definitely gave up a lot in that trade. Uh, we have seen what Daniel Norris can do. Uh, apparently, he can also swing the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Hit a home run the, uh, last night. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he got injured. I believe that was an oblique strain, was it not? That's what they're reporting, Alex. Uh, and it's definitely what it looked like, um, which was pretty tough for Tigers fans to see uh, after watching what was an absolutely amazing outing on both sides of the dish for him last night. Yeah, Daniel Norris was definitely a tough, a tough loss for the Blue Jays. Uh, and the other two that we gave up in that trade, uh, two more lefties, Matt Boyd and Jairo Laborte, were also well-regarded. Uh, Laborte pitched in the Futures game, representing the Blue Jays this year, although uh, from what I've read uh, on Baseball Prospectus, he projects more as a late-inning reliever, although he could definitely be a dominant one with a flat, with a fastball-slider mix. Matt Boyd uh, was sort of a seen as just a, a guy, just an, a fringy organizational-type pitcher. Uh, he made... Uh, Carson Sestouli's Fringe 5 on Fangraphs last year. Uh, he got involved with the Driveline Baseball program, I believe. Uh, it's a program out uh, in C based out of Seattle, run by a fellow named Kyle Bodie. And what uh, he works on is mechanical development for the development of velocity and the continuation of health in pitchers. And through that program, he increased his average velocity from 89 to 92 to 92 to 94, and he would touch 96. And that's what we saw from Matt Boyd in uh, the pair of starts he made for the Blue Jays this year. And unfortunately for him, the last start he made for the Blue Jays was that one that I referenced earlier. Uh, just a complete disaster. He was getting hit hard. He got... Uh, some bad uh, batting average on balls in play, luck a little bit, and uh, didn't end up recording an out. But uh, he was definitely seen as a possible future, a fifth starter, and uh, if not that, uh, definitely a bullpen guy. Um, Alec, do you have any questions for Alex? I do. I have a couple questions, and I guess they're related. And, and one is, uh, do you expect any changes at either the general manager or manager positions uh, going into 2016? And related, number two, do you anticipate that the people in those roles, especially the general manager position, will uh, make a, an attempt to and succeed at retaining David Price, or do you think he's gone after this year? Wow, these are actually two 
really difficult questions right now because the Blue Jays president is due to have his contract expire at the end of the year and it is not expected uh, that he will return. Uh, his name is Paul Beeston. Uh, he had been uh, with the organization for years, uh, particularly during right from the origin of the team through the uh, glory years of the early 1990s. And then he returned uh, a few years ago uh, in the president's role again, but he's an older gentleman and it's expected that he will step away. Uh, so there has been some question as to whether the new president whoever that may be, will bring in his own people, uh, his or her own people, I should say. And there was even talk that perhaps uh, Dave Dombrowski was being considered for that role uh, going into 2016. I think they will make an attempt to re-sign David Price. I, I think they have to. They've seen the value of having a superstar pitcher and just... Have making an effort, the best effort they can to win games. Uh, since the trade, uh, they have sold nearly half a million tickets uh, for uh, the remainder of 2015. There, uh, one article that I ran across in one of the local papers called the Globe and Mail, one of the Toronto papers, uh, estimated that on tickets alone, the the Blue Jays will end up with an additional thirty to thirty five million dollars in profit, as a result of the tickets sold wow. after the trades, and that doesn't include uh, things like concessions, merchandise, uh, marketing capability. So I think they absolutely have to. I I think it may not end up being price, but I don't. I think there's an excuse for the Blue Jays to not replace Price either with himself or with a similar caliber pitcher. Well, makes sense to me. Uh, anything more, Alec? That was all I had. Okay. Uh, I just my next question. I don't want to put the cart too far before the horse, but uh, what are your concerns, if you have concerns, um, with Toronto down the stretch, and if we get to the playoffs, and let's. I don't, like I said, I don't want to jinx anything, but w w do you have any concerns with this team? You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, there's always been kind of a weakness. What's the bugaboo in this team now? I don't know if I would say it was one specific thing, uh, but there are a couple of areas that I am concerned about. Uh, first of all, we have a wonderful closer in a 20-year-old right-hander named Roberto Asuna. Uh, he is a nephew of former Major League reliever Antonio Asuna, I believe. And he is uh, now in his second year removed from Tommy John surgery, and he only threw th about 35 innings last year. And as of right now, he's projected to throw approximately 70 innings, and that wouldn't include playoffs. So uh, even though... Uh, Roberto Asuna and Aaron Sanchez could potentially form an elite uh, one-two punch at the back of the Blue Jays' bullpen, having that Kelvin uh, Herrera, uh, Wade Davis, Greg Holland uh, type effect. I'm not sure if the, that option is available 
uh, to the Blue Jays just as they monitor Osuna's innings. And who is the who starts in in, in a playoff series? I know Price goes game one, sure, um, but kind of who is the two three? And if you need one, a fourth starter who who, who lines up? And, and what do you think is the best you know way to get through there? David Price definitely starts, as you said. Uh, R. A. Dickey and Mark Burley would be the two and three starters. I believe they would likely go to R.A. Dickey for game, t- uh, for game two. Uh, Marco Estrada would be available as a fourth starter, mm. uh, although I'm not sure if they would go that route. They may, as uh, Mark Burley, just being older and whatnot, has dealt with uh, aches and pains uh, throughout the course of the year. They've tried to get him an extra day uh, here and there where possible, and yet... Uh, Amazingly, he just soldiers on, still having not missed a major league start in all of those years. And he just puts up, what, a 3-6, ERA and pitches about 180 innings every year. You just look up and it's amazing. He just He's the energizer bunny. Yeah, he is. He just goes out there and just executes. It's not flashy. It's not... You know, he's not one of those guys you have to turn on your TV to see, but you just know you're going to get a solid performance uh, from Mark Burley uh, every time out. And uh, also, he seems to be a valuable leader and presence in the clubhouse. The players talk about uh, what they've learned from him. Uh, Marcus Stroman. Uh, calls him Papa Burley. <laughs> I love and, Stroman. Uh, Stroman's so good. Even the other day, on a on one of the Saturday games where they have Junior Jays Saturday, uh, where young children are allowed to join the Blue Jays on the fields uh, before the game and stand there uh, for the playing of the national anthem. Uh, Mark Burley uh, noticed that a couple of the the young children had their caps on and he just uh, quietly and politely just plucked their caps off and uh, elbowed Edwin Encarnacion as well, who had also forgotten to remove his. <laughs> so um, final question for you. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Prediction. Do they make the playoffs? And then if so, how far does Toronto go? Do they make the playoffs? I believe so. I, I think they will either make the playoffs as a division winner or as a wild card team. I think they are a better team than the Yankees. I do think they can overtake them. They have, I believe, seven games with the Yankees remaining. So uh, the hope originally, even before all of the trades, was that the Blue Jays would uh, maybe go nine and four uh, in those remaining 13 games they had with them. And of the six they have played, uh, they've now gone four and two. Uh, So it's a tall order to uh, get to that, get to that point that we had desired originally as, as fans, but it it can be done. Uh, The Yankees can be caught and passed. Uh, If they make the playoffs, I don't know how far they'll go. It's, I think we all know the playoffs are quite random, and you're constantly dealing with small samples. But uh, I would 
I could definitely see them uh, advancing to the World Series. Uh, a New York Mets Toronto Blue Jays World Series uh, would be fantastic. Uh, the excellent right-handed pitching that uh, the Mets have, including uh, former Blue Jays prospect Noah Syndergaard, up against the Blue Jays right-handed heavy lineup, which I didn't get a chance to touch on, but is the other concern that the Blue Jays have going into uh, any potential playoff series uh, with their top hitters being so uh, right-handed heavy and Tulowitzki, Donaldson, uh, Batista, Encarnacion, and Russell Martin. Uh, could they be exposed by elite right-handed pitching late in games, especially with the expanded usage patterns that are available uh, in playoff baseball? That's a great point. That's a very, very good point. So it's going to be the Mets in Toronto in the World Series, says Alex Hume. That's what I'm hearing. That would be that would be nice, and it would be really nice if the Blue Jays could win that. <laughs> well, okay, that goes without saying. So, uh, very very cool. Okay, uh, one more subject, a little more lighthearted that I want to talk about, uh, if possible, and and maybe I should just give Alec the floor to begin with. Um, Alec, you wrote a piece recently that I want to just kind of banter about a little bit. So, uh, tag in, take over, Alec. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, this week up on techgraphs.com, which you may be familiar with as part of the Fangraphs uh, group of websites, I wrote an article about a lawsuit filed by a baseball fan, as season ticket holder of the Oakland A's. Uh, she filed a lawsuit against baseball last month uh, seeking to force Major League Baseball to extend the safety netting uh, at every Major League and Minor League ballpark. And what she's asking is for safety netting to be extended uh, from its current position around home plate all the way down the foul lines uh, or along the fan lines to the foul poles. Um, and so that's the core of her lawsuit. She's sought to make it a class action lawsuit. Uh, and that has raised some interesting legal questions, um, which I address briefly in my article there. But because it's on techgraphs.com, I also touch on the technology angle, and my argument is that uh, this complaint uh, and this lawsuit basically cries out for a technological solution. Obviously, many fans have expressed uh, resentment or opposition to the pain lawsuit um, on the basis that expanded safety netting will obstruct their view of the game. And so uh, what I'm interested in uh, is what you guys think about that. You uh, both uh, go to baseball games, as do I, and what you would think about uh, the expansion of netting, how it can be done. I happen to think it's probably inevitable, uh, and so I would be interested to, to get your opinions and uh, if you have any thoughts about ways that it can be done uh, that might be less obstructive or obtrusive to fans' uh, enjoyment of the game. Uh, Alex, go ahead first. Uh, like Al Alex said, I, I think it is inevitable that we will see uh, length and netting uh, down the baselines. I do think it will provide uh, some obstruction uh, for the fans, although having had the opportunity uh, to sit in some seats where uh, you are right behind the netting. Uh, the obstruction is nowhere near as severe as I think what some people 
may picture. I think now it is a necessity in the 21st century of being a baseball fan. Everyone at these games is plugged into some sort of electronic device, uh, whether it is a phone or an iPad or anything. Some of the teams even offer opportunities to do things like order merchandise or even order food off of these electronic devices through apps uh, and have the uh, items delivered to the fan seat. So it is inevitable that fans will take uh, their eyes off the game, regardless of how much uh, we may think they should or shouldn't. And it is the responsibility of the major league teams to protect those people from injury. I think you guys both used the right word to inevitability. I think, you know, we saw the, I think it was a young lady in Boston a few months ago, uh, get hit, you know, pretty severely and, and, you know, goodness knows, thank goodness she's okay. It sounds like, but I think inevitable is the right word, but getting to Alex question, I think there's got to be, and I don't know if technology is the right word for this, but I think there's got to be a way that we can create a, a better netting that can be every bit as effective at, at, you know, blocking or, you know, protecting us from the baseball, but yet isn't as imposing as the thick uh, nylon black netting that there is. I mean, could we do something with, you know, fishing line that is very thin, or could we do something with a, is there a way or a product that could be more transparent and see-through while still protecting us at the same level? You know, we have steel, but then there's titanium, which is a lot stronger and lighter. It's, can we do something that is a better pro or a better take on the netting. I also wanted to comment a little bit, if I could. I'm concerned with the netting from the all the way to the foul poles. I go to a tremendous amount of minor league games, and first of all, I don't know how expensive that would be, but that feels a little over overkill, maybe is the right word. I feel like maybe if you get it past the third baseline or to the dirt, that would probably give people enough reaction time. I, I, one other thing, a concern I have is uh, what a thrill everybody seems to have trying to go after foul balls, particularly, you know, I said I go to minor league games, you know, the kids are chasing after them and such. I wonder if we would lose some of that catching a foul ball and, and the novelty of of that experience as a baseball fan and just as a fan, if we put up netting all the way to uh, so far that particularly if we go all the way to the foul line, do we almost ruin that experience to a certain degree? I'm, I don't know that necessarily, certainly if you got injured, everybody would say the trade-off would be worth it, but I, I'm concerned that we lose a lot of the fan experience taking it to such a degree. Yeah, I think you're right, Ryan. It's definitely a lot of uh, competing concerns. And I think that's why we need to have a, Major League Baseball needs to undertake a serious study of this question, uh, much like, uh, as I'm sure Alex will remember, uh, hockey, the NHL has done, uh, to find a way to get this done and to the point where down the road, however they install this, people will come to view it as second nature and a part of the game. Uh, I think you know, it really sets up and incentivizes some innovation from the net technology folks, whoever they may be, and, um, you know, there's going to be a solution here and it's going to be studied. People will look at trajectories and ball speed, and batted ball uh, spreads to find out what are the danger areas. 
and it will be done in a way I think that will be effective and will maintain that fan experience. And and I said to you, Alec, off air, uh, I go like I said, the minor league games. It, there are times where those uh, individuals are 25, 30 feet from home plate. I mean, I don't care how if you're totally into the game and you have a glove. If that guy hits a ricochet or you know a quick check swing, you don't have reaction time. I mean, I I'm nervous just trying to take video at of hitters at minor league games because it's so close. I couldn't protect myself if the ball came off the bat. So I do think it needs to be done, quite frankly. I'm surprised that, and I hate to say it this way, but I'm surprised that we haven't had somebody seriously, seriously long-term injured or, or you know, even lose a life uh, because of this, frankly. Unfortunately, we are encroaching on that territory. Uh, young girl here in Atlanta at a Braves game had uh, – very serious head injury and was the basis for an ongoing lawsuit here in the Georgia courts. And so uh, we are encroaching in that area. And so I think it would be who both uh, innovators and Major League Baseball take a very serious look at this uh, and fans to start adjusting their expectations in some degree. And no disrespect to the lady in Atlanta. I'm sorry I didn't mention her as well. But And I'm also, I would rather this happen before we lose someone rather than afterwards? I think that would be everybody's preference. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and, and hockey is uh, seem to move on with having the netting, and, and I, I don't think they go all the way. I think it's blue line, and maybe, you know, Alex, you might be better with it being a hockey fan, but it's not all the way around the arena, but they protected the areas that most likely, you know, protect everybody, so to speak. Yes, and uh, that that seems to have worked out quite well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for the hockey world, uh, it did involve a young girl being severely injured, uh, and I believe she may have even uh, lost her life from the injuries uh, to Brit- get the, to get that done. Brittany Cecil, so, yeah, she did pass on. Absolutely. So, uh, like you have both said, it's important that Major League Baseball addresses this issue before it it gets to that point we, we don't we don't want to see uh, a baseball fan uh, lose lose their life um, because even more importantly than a baseball fan uh, they're a person and they also have loved ones no question going to the, going to the baseball game should not be uh, a dangerous experience it should so- be enjoyable so it sounds like we're all on the same page, but I guess the final question I'll ask for the group is, uh, how far do you take the netting? It sounds like we all want to extend it. How far do, do we want to extend it? I'll start with uh, Alex. Go ahead, bud. I think definitely at least to the, to the bases. Um, I, I could even see potentially extending it uh, further, although it may not be necessary, I think once uh, you get into the outfield, uh, there's there should be enough reaction time that uh, a person should be able to uh, get get out of the way of a of a of a baseball. But uh, definitely uh, down to at least the bases, uh, people are very vulnerable. Alex, same question. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think, you know, one lesson, and I do think it needs to be studied uh, for this explicit purpose. We have so much in the way of spray charts and things like that for balls in play. Um, We just need to extend that into the out-of-play areas to make sure we've got the right area. But I tend to agree with Alex. I think 
uh, roughly that distance. And I think one instructive lesson there is actually, I'm sure many teams do this. I know the Braves do this uh, during the pregame activities, warm-ups, uh, batting practice and whatnot, uh, while fans are finding their seats and really not paying attention to the field. Uh, they do, in fact, extend temporary netting uh, down to uh, roughly the, ba- the end of the base or the end of the dirt. Um, during that period. And so I think that probably provides a pretty instructive um, scope of extent of the netting that would probably be appropriate. And maybe this is a place where the batted ball velocity can be used for a, a better purpose and not just a baseball purpose. Maybe this can help us in this decision of how far the, the netting needs to go. But I'm with you guys. I think probably to, thir- to the bags or uh, maybe to the end of the dirt would probably be more than sufficient, I would think. All right, guys, um, I think we're going to cut it off there for this week. I think that was a really solid uh, discussion. We covered a lot of ground. Um, I want to give you guys both kind of a place to plug your work, where they can find you on Twitter, where they can find you on the net, and just whatever you want to you know, plug and say goodbye. So uh, once again, let's start alphabetically. Alec, go ahead, bud. Sure. Thanks, Ryan uh, and Alex. Uh, you can find me, my writing on Vanish to the Pen also at aldland.wordpress.com and on Twitter at aldlandia. Very cool. Alex, same question. Uh, likewise, I can be found on uh, Banish to the Pen. Uh, I have I have written uh, for Bullpen Banter uh, as a as a fantasy sports writer previously, although that. Uh, site is now uh, defunct uh, thanks to the wonderful success of uh, the owners and and creators and originators of the site uh, moving into different roles and uh, I can also I also just had a piece published on Forbes.com or rather I was quoted in that piece uh, talking about uh, the Blue Jays fan base and their involvement in social media Uh, I was uh, I I'm on Facebook uh, in a Blue Jays fan group called Baseball North uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, it has over 6,000 members, and I'm helping to manage that. I can be found on Twitter at ahume92, so that's A-H-U-M-E-9-2. And I'll be writing something for Banish to the Pen hopefully in the next week on Mark Burley and... Uh, his case for or or against uh, entering the Hall of Fame. Oh, okay. Very, very cool. Okay. Well, guys, I thought that was a, a really great show. I want to thank you both for joining me and taking time out of a Thursday night, uh, also for rescheduling, which I guess not everybody knows, but thank you guys. Um, and I hope to have you guys on uh, here in the near future so we can talk some more baseball. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll be uh, talking more Blue Jays uh, late into October. <laughs> Well, hopefully it'll be a Nationals Blue Jays World Series anyways. Just cheap plug on that end. So, uh, But thank you, guys, and I hope to talk to you guys soon. Thanks, Thanks, Ryan. And that was episode 30 of the Banished to the Pen podcast with uh, special guest Alex Denton, or Alec Denton, pardon me, and Alex Hume. Tough when you got an Alec and an Alex. But uh, thank you both to those guys for joining me. Uh, also, as I do each day, I want to thank everybody that's uh, a part of Banish to the Pen uh, for all their hard work. We do a really great product. There are a lot of people working very hard. Ken, thank you for all your hard work, along with many others. And uh, just pat on the back for a, a job well done, guys. This episode is a wrap. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, at NatsGM.com on Twitter. Reminding you, be nice to your fellow listeners.